Hi, this is Phil from the Hendrix Project, and welcome to this episode of Being Jimmy, where I share the thrills and spills of being a Jimi Hendrix impersonator. So, it's two months before our next show, and I need to start getting it together once again. Um, what happens when we don't have a show for a good few months, you know, like four or five months, which has kind of been, as we've been through winter time here, we don't tend to play too much in winter. Um, when we don't have a show for a fairly long time, I just like to, to put the whole thing down because, as you can imagine, playing in a Hendrix tribute show takes everything you've got and you really need to be on your game. So it's kind of like athletic training, you know? You train and you train and you train for this one point in time. Um, but then when it's over, you probably just relax and, you know, take a break from training for a bit. And that's exactly what I do. So I haven't listened to any Jimi Hendrix, I haven't played any Jimi Hendrix, I haven't had really anything to do with Jimi, much as I love him. Just because I need my brain to rest, my fingers to rest, and I need to allow, you know, space in my brain for, for other things to, to come to come out, musical creativity stuff. Because it does take uh, all my brain power. So it's two months, pretty much. I think nine weeks or this will be coming into eight weeks before the show. So I now need to begin the process once again of my training. So I take it in several stages. It's something I've developed over the years when I've needed to learn an awful lot of songs at an awful, uh, well, at a really high level. I do it in passes, um, you know, so I have several layers that I go through. There's like, you know, just the overview layer, the general layer, and then I go deeper and deeper into the one level of detail, and then another layer of detail, and then the absolute details as time goes by. Um, this might not work for everyone, but it certainly works for me. Uh, so the first step in that is then what I do is begin to immerse myself in the music of the man himself, and I reread. Um, the book Through Gypsy Eyes by Kathy Etching and his girlfriend um, to remember and understand Jimmy as a person and things that happened and also to remember the stories I mean I've read the book probably eight or nine times but there's always something you know your memory doesn't hold everything all the time things fall out at the bottom of it so you, you, you need to be putting things in the top and I read it as well as get to, as well as getting a sense for Jimmy, to remember the stories and things. You know, there's some great stories that Kathy shares <coughs> that aren't really in the music history books because they're not like facts and figures and things like that, but kind of anecdotal things. You know, of somebody who was there as an observer. So I always reread that book, and um, what I do is. Just listen to Jimmy all the time. So 
on my way to work in the car, on my way home from work in the car. You know, um, the last thing at night, put some headphones in before I go to sleep. I may fall asleep even listening to Jimmy. Uh, I put a lot of stock in the fact that my subconscious brain and probably your creative musical subconscious brain too, it does a lot of offline processing, which means you can take an input signal, even if you're not consciously awake, and your brain can be processing aspects of it, whether you know it or not. And um, it really, when you wake up the next morning, gives you a little bit of a feeling like you know a bit more, although... (laughs) Although nothing's really happened. But do this over a period of two or three months, like I'm about to do, and it really helps build picture and colour and sentiment uh, into, into what you're going to play. Because when I play as Jimmy, I play as close as I can to Jimmy, but, but in certain parts of songs and in certain songs... There's a jam aspect, exactly in the same way that Jimmy, Mitch, and Noel approached their songs. I mean, that's how they came up with songs. They were jamming all the time. There's a lick here, a lick there, a riff here, a riff there, and they got pieced together. It was very costly because they jammed in the studio. And obviously, studio time has to be paid for. So I wouldn't recommend doing that in this day and age. Certainly rehearsal room, jam stuff. But anyway, it's kind of a fine line you have to walk as a, as a Hendrix performer because if you don't play it like people remember it from the radio or from the original recordings, if you don't play it exactly like that, they don't think you've done your homework. They're like, oh, this guy's just kind of brushing over it. They do expect some kind of exactitude there. But at the same time, they don't want you to be a clone, if, if, if such a thing was even possible, to be a clone of Jimi Hendrix. But they also don't want you to play exactly like they've heard it before, because then you would have brought nothing new to the table. You wouldn't have, as a musician, contributed anything further injected any of your own musical creativity so it's a very interesting line very interesting process and very interesting when you get to that performance um, I'm kind of sense led by that I'm not really aware of it at the time I play Jimmy's licks and I play my licks in there somewhere but somewhere it kind of all melds together and as well as listening to the studio recordings of all the famous hits I also make a point of listening to many many live recordings all uh, Miami Pop Festival, Monterey, Woodstock, Hendrix in the West um, all of those ones that are out there, just endless live performances, where often he pretty much played the same set, (coughs) bar one or two songs. Um, But what you have to understand and appreciate with Jimmy is 
you know, when he recorded Hey Joe, that was one moment in time. And that was, I don't know, take three or something, or take six. If you listen to take five, it's completely different. His, his kind of iconic guitar solo, his rhythm work, that everyone copies, note for note, would have been different. And if take five had been deemed the best take, then we would all have learned a completely different solo to Wind Cries Mary and a different kind of rhythm structure and, and variations on his chords because that would have been the one moment in time that was deemed um, suitable for immortalization. So when you listen to the live recordings, you can see how literally between like an afternoon show and evening show, Jimmy, just like many other great artists, he never played the same thing twice. He never, he's always free-flowing creative ideas as they occurred to him, flew out from his hands in the moment, just so wonderfully and creatively. But he was kind of like, uh, you know, an endless fountain of musical creativity. It was always going, it was always flowing. And so, listening to those live recordings really gives other aspects of Jimmy's playing, gives clues to those things, gives, um, gives context to some of the ideas and motifs that he was using. You know, some things come up, you might hear a little lick on a recorded song. I can't remember an example, but I was listening to something off, um, something off Electric Ladyland. And there was this little motif in that recorded song and then in a completely different song that he plays um, live, that motif turned up again. So I guess you can draw a line through some of those things and both in a timeline, so it must be around the time he was recording that particular track or at least the solo for that track on Electric Ladyland and then maybe they stopped and they did a couple of shows or something. So you can sew together, join up some of the dots and motifs, and you can, after extended repeated listening, start to build a picture of Jimmy's creativity and the ideas musically that he was interested in at certain points in time and how, he, how they first appeared. You're like, oh, I've just noticed this, and then they appear again, but in a slightly different form. And you get to understand how they grew and how Jimmy extended and explored these ideas um, within the live show because obviously the studio sessions were there to record a track. He wasn't really there to um, explore in the way that he had the license to lie. You know? And so those are very interesting. And that's, that's the way I start with immersion, listening to all the Hendrix stuff, and of course, there's some stuff that Jimmy played that, that he didn't write. There's, there's lots of fantastic cover versions of stuff that Jimmy made more famous by covering them than the original artists. I mean, the obvious one is All Along the Watchtower, but there's things like um, Wild Thing by the Trogs. Um, also things like Sunshine of Your Love by Cream, although Cream had a really... Um, a great success with that. Um, he was always playing stuff. He played Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Beatles never played that because obviously the Beatles were, decided they were never going to play live again and that was just going to be a studio album. 
Uh, what else did he do? Like a Rolling Stone. He did Johnny Be Good. Just things he loved to play. I mean, Bob, he was really into Bob Dylan. He was. He learned to play guitar listening to, to Chuck Berry and um, some of the early blues artists as well as the rock and roll stuff. So it was all part of Jimmy's interest in music as well. He wasn't just covering them because he thought it would sell. And I don't think Jimmy ever did that. I don't think Jimmy was overly commercially focused. He was just like, I want to play this. That would be cool. And there's lots of kind of rare jams and things that that are out there as bootlegs. The, the, the beginnings of ideas and I get lots of comments from people on YouTube and I get lots of emails from people saying oh can you can you teach me how to play this and they'll give me a link to some um, some track and it is literally it's a jam you know it'll be a jam on a groove usually it's blues based but I always have to say look <laughs> can't really because this is Jimmy doing what Jimmy does best which is just letting it come out letting it flow and there's no real structure there's no repeated motifs there's no kind of A section B section it's just all real freedom stream of consciousness playing and that kind of stuff is it's impossible to teach it's impossible really to to make that into tab and then give it to somebody because it it's just that man with that guitar in that moment in time exploring an idea and I never try and attempt those things um, they're just crazy but there are you know other things that do have a at least a skeleton <coughs> a framework in which jams can be created through like you know things we play like Voodoo Child there's space in there to jam as well as do the signature licks and all the, the key parts you'll be familiar with um, like a Rolling Stone there's a little bit of uh, a license there but not so much Hear My Trainer Coming is always a good one um, none of the others off the top of my head spring to mind probably because you know I haven't touched them for four months so not really that familiar so that's what I will be doing as the, the first stage in basically building a character because that's how I see my role kind of like an actor uh, but uh, yeah, building a musical character So that's going to be interesting. This show is um, in January. It's early January. It's January the 6th, this show. Now, here in New Zealand, January is the middle of summertime. I know, it's, it's weird. Wherever you are in the world, you're probably from the Northern Hemisphere, mostly. And January means freezing temperatures and dark days. And, you know, everyone's rugged up. But here in New Zealand, uh, Southern Hemisphere, it's blazing summer sunshine and it's basically, the Christmas holidays are your equivalent of the summer holidays. So everything shuts down, everyone goes away on holiday. Now they don't go on holiday, leave the country, although some of them do, but there's a great tradition here of everyone kind of heads north to the warmer spots, to the spots by the beach of which there are hundreds 
and the particular venue we're in is one of those kind of holiday spots. It's at a winery um, that's very famously known for hosting big musical events. There's a there's a national thing that happens here with um, artists from all over New Zealand and Australia. It's called the Winery Tour. And they basically get like, I don't know, three or four name artists and they do this tour of wineries, like the really big ones. They put up a massive stage outside. A lot of the wineries, obviously, they've got vineyards and the vineyards are on the hill and the hill have got all the vines and the grapes and most of them are on slopes. So the, the one that we're going to be playing at, well, not that we're going to be playing outside, but typically when they do the big winery tour, they use the kind of natural amphitheater lay of the land um, around the, the, the vines for the people to congregate, to, to watch the bands. Now, they're not kind of in amongst the vines. The vines are kind of start halfway up the hill and they've gone from the halfway up the hill to right to the bottom. So, I don't know, there's about five or 6,000 people go to these things. So that's why it's a good venue for us because it's already got a good musical pedigree. It's a spot on the map that people know, although it's not in a very populated area, when summertime comes around, a lot of people go there and stay there for, for holiday season because it's a, it's a beautiful country setting. There's lots of vineyards, um, lots of peace of quiet. It's very close to the beach. So we're hoping, well, the theory is that we're going to be trying to, you know, get the tourist dollar in on that show particularly. You could see it either way. You could see it, well, that's a bad choice of day because everybody goes on holiday, everybody goes away, and nobody will come to your show because everybody will be away. But if you locate the show where a large amount of people are going to be holiday, then I'm hoping that that logic lends itself. And it's not a cheap place to stay either, this area. So um, because of the nature of what's on offer around there, it tends to be people of a certain age, you know, a certain demographic that fits our market of the kind of 40. Well, you know, anyone can like Jimi Hendrix, but 40 plus is typically our market. People are into Jimi the first time around, plus um, any people who've discovered it on the way. Um, and so because it's a kind of well-heeled area, there'll be hopefully the, exactly the kind of people who want to go to that show. So I've got to get on with doing the, the, the PR and the marketing and um, the signs. Signage is important here. I don't normally spring money for signage, but this winery is on the main road. Like it's the only road in and out of that particular area, so everybody has to go past it. And, and the winery already have kind of pre-made um, signage holders up there, so we just need to get a couple of two or three A1, A2 um, plastic signs made, just letting people know there's a Jimi Hendrix show on this date, and they usually put them up like a a month or two before, so I need to get on it. And um, hopefully that will bring some in. We've got obviously the mailings to people who've been to the shows before. We actually played at that venue about eight months ago, and it was a great success. It was really, really cool. 
There's nothing more thrilling than hearing all the people arrive and the buzz and the excited chatter while you're waiting backstage. It's really, really, it's, it's really thrilling. <laughs> There's nothing like it. And uh, that was a big gamble for us to do that venue because, uh, you know, we had to pay for the overhead. So we had to pay money to kind of hire the hall and then we have to pay our sound guy. And then we had to pay for obviously the cost of signage and advertising and that kind of stuff. So we were in the hole for quite a lot of money. So we were, we were nervous about that, but it all came off perfectly in the end. Because I get dressed up as Jimmy and all of that, I have to kind of stay out of sight uh, before the show because we make a, an entrance and, you know, it's a proper show, so we don't just kind of mosey up on stage and kind of plug in and kind of get started. The, the show starts at a definite point in time, like a real show. Whether we're playing to 10 people or 10,000 people, the, the way the show is orchestrated is the same. And we take that very seriously. It's very vital, I think, that the first time people clap eyes on you, they need to go, that's the guy who's been Jimmy. And, and I kind of am Jimmy. All the, all the visual clues are there, the hat, you know, the shirt, the guitar, uh, you know, the flamboyant scarves, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's really important. And if you're kind of seen before the show, it kind of breaks that fourth wall, I think. So I have to stay out of sight. But it was great. Just before the show started, we were outside the venue. Because the kind of dressing room is inside the venue, but there's no access from the dressing room to the stage. You had to kind of go outside the venue round the back and there's a kind of side door which you can come straight in and then go up straight on the stage you don't have to walk through the crowd or anything so I was outside and the, and the curtains were drawn but they weren't drawn completely so I was peeping through the crack in the curtains looking at you know 130 150 people who were there going wow <laughs> this is this is going to be awesome this is going to be really awesome and you know we really built the anticipation for them um, there was no support band or anything it was just us and the doors opened and pretty much everyone arrived exactly when doors opened some people even arrived before doors opened um there was like a group of like 10 guys and they came in at like 7 45 or something the show didn't even start till 8 30. Um, no, actually, that's wrong. The, the, the doors didn't open till 8.30. And I don't think we went on till like 9 o'clock. So we were kind of surprised to see them because we were still in our T-shirts and shorts and, uh, you know, still getting the sound right. And, you know, we were still sound checking when they came in. And I don't like that happening because they get to kind of see the show before it's a show, before, you know, you know what I mean. But they were like, oh yeah, man, we just we weren't sure how what the traffic was gonna be like, so we just thought we'd come early. Which is fair enough, that's a valid reason. Um, and they still enjoyed the show. But it was so cool to see all those people waiting to see us. <laughs> <clears throat> I know it's not really us, it was us 
perform Jimmy stuff, but it still feels really good that people value the music of Jimi Hendrix as much as I do and as much as the rest of the guys in the band do. I mean, it's important to keep this thing alive rather than just hear it on the radio or on Spotify and go, oh yeah, that's a cool song, yeah, I like that. But to see it perform live, I think the act of performing something live is just as vital as, you know, the song itself. Songs have always been created by musicians and songwriters to be performed, not put on a shelf or not played once in a while on the radio. That's not what songs are for. It's great when you hear them, but the purpose of a song is for people to be there when it's performed and not to play the song, but to perform the song is a vital part of Everybody who has the privilege to stand on stage in front of any kind of audience, um, that's your job. It's not to play the song, it's to connect and perform the song. Now for Jimmy, performing obviously means doing a few crazy guitar histrionic type of things like playing the guitar behind your back, that kind of stuff, which I do do. I don't do the whole playing guitar with my teeth because well, the cost of dental here in New Zealand is like <laughs> way massive. And I actually have a cap on my front tooth. So that's just not something I think I'm comfortable doing. If I had teeth that were okay, you know, like teeth that weren't capped, I, had, I broke, broke my front tooth when I was about eight years old. I've had a cap on it ever since. If I didn't have that cap, I probably would give it a go. But behind the head and maybe a few other things is as far as I go, but it's still cool. But still, you know, it does absolutely go off when, when that happens. People love that. People love the art of performance, the mastery of knowing when the right time to do that is. It's, you know, you could do that for the opening song and you wouldn't get half the reaction, if at all as if you chose to do it later on in the set. And, you know, the design of the set list is, is very important. People don't, people think, you know, people think that set list, oh, it's just like a list of the songs you're gonna play. No, man, no, that's so wrong. The set list is like, you know, the old, <laughs> it's like the old school mixtape, okay? You have put a lot of thought into which song goes there and then which song comes after that song and which song comes after that one. You're trying to build an experience, oh, pardon the pun. You're trying to build a story, a narrative through, the, through these songs and through the pacing of these songs. And there are times when people are gonna wanna freak out and dance and there are times when, if they've done a lot of that, then they're gonna want a couple of songs to cool down, grab a drink, maybe sit down if they've been going hard, to just recoup, recover, just for, uh, you know, just to take pause for uh, three or four minutes before they get back into it, before they get their second wind. So a set is never a list of songs. That, that's that's 
the last thing. The dictionary definition is it is a list of songs, but psychologically, there's a great deal of work that goes into crafting that. And you know, it's really obvious when you're on stage and you've written a set list in the best way you can, and you come to one of the songs in the set list, and you know it's not the right one to play at that moment in time. And there you've got a choice. You can just go through it or you can swap things around. If at all possible, I always try to let the crowd lead what we're doing. Because sometimes you think they're ready for a rest and they're nowhere near ready for a rest. And they're just like, more, more, more. And if you play, you know, a slow one, they're going to sit down and sometimes they'll never get back up. You kind of lose the momentum. So... You've always got to be open to that when you're on stage, I think. Because it's a give and take thing. It's a kind of one of these weird hive swarm, you know, crowd mentality things that we all kind of join together in a moment. And at that moment, we, we want to be something. It's, it's not an individual thing. It's, it's a collective thing. And that collective sentiment can can go anywhere and you just have to be attuned to to that in your audience and try to go kind of ride that wave I think that's a really good way of describing it you try and ride the wave of sentiment that your audience are giving you because some of them sometimes they, they want to go hard they want to go party 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 and just go non-stop and sometimes you know most of our demographic, they're not young people, so they do need to sit down sometimes. Um, and other times, you know, you're really surprised you get like a whole bunch of young people at the, like one of the shows we did a couple months ago, in fact the last show I think we did before we kind of took a bit of a hiatus was, was it a show where there was just a ton of young, young people at the front, like teenagers, and it always makes me happy to see young people who've discovered Jimmy because that means, you know, through their lifetime, they're going to communicate with other people about Jimmy and enjoy his music kind of, you know, way after I'm dead and way longer than, than lots of other people. You know, these people are 18, 19, they've got like a 20 year um, extension. And it's cool because so, I don't know why, you know, music's universal, but you don't expect young people to be so into Jimmy. but. There was a whole bunch of guys at the front and they were so excited. They were just hard out, ready for a good time. It was a Friday night. It was kind of like they'd been caged up somewhere for like two months and not allowed out because they just had so much energy and excitement. And they were shouting out all these tracks like, Isabella, um, bet you don't know how to play this one. You know, and it was, it was great fun. It was so funny. So... That's what I'll be doing for the next couple of months. Zoning in. Obviously, I'll be doing that for a couple of weeks. It's just listening and listening and listening. And then I'll move into the playing a bit again. And, and it's part revision, but it's part also learning these songs again. And every time I come back to them after a break, I'm like, holy cow, where did this bit come from? I've never heard this before. There are all these nuances and aspects that just keep 
it just it's like the gift that just keeps giving it's, it's amazing how something you you've lived and breathed for I've been doing this show for close to a year now and there's still so much that comes out of it that I hadn't discovered and I think that's real magic and uh, some of the best the great songs around have that longevity because they seem to although they've been set in stone and immortalised in a, in a recording that now everybody's trying to copy the recording and get that classic tone um, there's also this life of organic development that this song has because it seems to grow or there seems to be things hidden in it that you didn't hear on first listening you didn't hear on second listening you didn't hear on you know 50 listens or 100 listens there's you know something amazing that was it's kind of like it wasn't revealed to you until you were ready and it's kind of like until you were worthy because you know, somebody listening to Jimi Hendrix's song five times maybe maybe destiny, fate and the lords of music magic decide that that person isn't as worthy as somebody who's listened to that same song a thousand times or ten thousand times and then they go okay this guy's on his ten thousand and one ten thousand and first sorry listen so now we are at liberty to reveal the next secret of this track to him that's kind of how i feel about it well that's about all we've got time for for this episode so i will say goodbye and i'll see you in the next one and don't be late (laughs) 